Good evening. So over the course of this retreat so far, I've briefly touched in a few times to what are known as the three universal characteristics of all experience. Because all of our insight practice is designed to reveal impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self on deeper and deeper levels. Now because, unfortunately, this retreat is almost over, we don't have time to do full justice to each of these three characteristics. Each one of them would be worthy of several talks each. Nevertheless, in tonight's talk, I'd like to at least touch in to the third of these three characteristics, which is not-self, to explore some of the practical implications of this teaching, specifically in terms of how it can help to free us from some very common painful mind states. And then to see how the practice of mudita, or appreciative joy, can support that whole process of moving from clinging and resisting to ease and release. So that's an overview or a sneak preview of where this evening's talk is going to go. Just coming back to the starting point, this third one of the three universal characteristics, which is anatta or not-self. I wanted to focus on that tonight because probably for most people, it's the most challenging of the three to understand. And I think that's partly due to the usual translation of it as not-self. Because in English, this term tends to set up a duality of apparent opposites, self versus not-self. And this can reinforce a misunderstanding that the goal of our practice is for the self to somehow get rid of itself so it can stop selfing and become a not-self instead, which obviously is a bit like a dog chasing its tail. It's pretty futile and it just tends to tie us up in intellectual knots. So rather than thinking of not-self in terms of a binary, it can be more useful to approach it as a continuum or a spectrum. And we can think of this spectrum having two ends. And at one end is a very strongly activated sense of self. And at the other end is a much quieter, less activated sense And then we can practice noticing at any point in time, where are we along that spectrum? Are we more towards a rigid, strong, highly identified sense of self, or more open, easeful flow? So even right now you might notice that. For some of you it's possible that you're getting all tangled up in these ideas maybe feeling like you're not getting it, maybe there's some frustration, some judgment or self-judgment. Possibly that's shifting you more to the more tight sense of self end of the spectrum. There might be some beliefs being activated of being a bad student or never understanding it right. And if you're over and towards that terrain, is it possible just to know, oh, sense of self is getting activated right now without adding any more reactivity to it. Others of you might be sitting listening, 
perhaps not all of it makes sense yet, but you're content just to let the ideas, the words flow through and trust that whatever's useful might somehow stick. So there's an overall feeling of openness, presence. And for you in this moment, the sense of self might be fairly loose and quiet. And you can notice that. Oh, sense of self is less strong right now. Rather than perhaps going into, I'm getting pretty good at this not-self stuff. It's too bad they don't give out awards, because I'd probably get the gold medal for best (laughs) not-self. And we can hear, jokingly, how we've shifted back towards the other end of the spectrum. So noticing where we are along that spectrum, we start to recognize how it feels when the sense of self is strongly activated, how much dukkha comes with that, how much stress, distress, suffering. And when we really let that in, it's easier to let go of that clinging and identification. And then on the other side too, when we really start to notice those quieter, more refined States when the sense of self is in abeyance or at times maybe completely dissipated, the relative ease and spaciousness and peace of that becomes obvious and we naturally want to stay there. So just as you're going about your day, you might notice what sort of conditions or circumstances tend to create a stronger sense of identification and what helps that sense of self to feel less activated. So as we get used to doing that, we can start to recognize some of the patterns, the thought forms that tend to reinforce a more fixed and solid sense of me. And in my own practice, and also in working with students in various countries around the world, There are two very common thought patterns, thought patterns that are so common that they almost seem to be universal. And I think of them almost as syndromes, that somehow our dominant mainstream society seems to infect us with from a pretty young age. And yet, tragically, most people who are affected by these painful patterns tend to think that they alone suffer from them and that they alone are uniquely defective in these particular ways. So the first pattern is a self-belief about not being good enough, not having enough, being fundamentally inadequate in some way. And I call this syndrome lack mind for short, lack, L-A-C-K, And I hear about this a lot in the individual practice meetings. And of course, everyone or many people have their own particular flavor of it. But it's been quite shocking for me in this role as teacher to hear just how common this patterning is. And the second afflictive mental pattern is in some ways a cousin to lack mind, a variation of it. And we can, it's known as comparing mind. And it's that very common tendency to assess oneself in relation to other people. 
to assess oneself as being either better than, worse than, or equal to. And in the Buddha's teachings, this is known as manna. And the symptoms include being constantly aware of what other people are doing and hyper-aware of what we ourselves are doing by comparison. And often there's an inner monologue about how well or badly we're doing relative to those other people, or sometimes to ourselves at previous retreats. And this comparing a mind is not just confined to our retreat experience. It shows up pretty much anywhere where there are other people. So in our families, in our workplaces, our communities, our neighborhoods, our sanghas. So I'm using these two particular afflictive thought patterns, lack mind and comparing mind, as two particular examples of painful thinking. There are plenty more that we could bring in, but we can think of these two as representatives for all the other types of afflictive thoughts. And we can learn how to help them release using antidotes from both our Vipassana and Brahma-Vihara practice. So in other words, bringing in both wisdom and compassion, the two wings to awakening that I spoke about the other night. So coming back to lack mind, this tendency to approach everything from a sense of not having enough or not being good enough or being somehow inadequate unlovable, fundamentally flawed. In Buddhist terms, this lack mind is an example of what's known as a volitional mental formation. This means a mental construct or a belief structure that we ourselves have unconsciously created. And then through our clinging to that, our identifying with it and taking it personally, we tend to inhabit it as if it was actual reality. And this misperception of lack mind, it stops us from seeing clearly. It keeps us locked into a small sense of me, isolated and disconnected from other human beings around us. Now, early on in my own practice, this lack mind was something that I struggled with for quite a few years. And I believe that it was something unique to me, to my specific family, my social conditioning. And I also believed, by comparison, everyone else had it all together. Everyone else was fundamentally well-balanced and living blissfully free of even the slightest trace of neurosis. And it was only when I came into the teaching role and I heard so many people describing similar patterns that I started to see just how common this lack mind is. So I've shared with some of you before, a few years ago I taught a series of classes that were exploring afflictive mental states and ways to transform them. And to try to ease into the theme on the first class, I invited people to write two lists. I asked them to put together a list of anxieties that commonly came up for them in daily life and then a list of anxieties that commonly came up in relation to their dharma practice. And then I collected all the lists that they'd written and I typed them up into a document that we could share with the group. And if you'd asked me beforehand to guess what kind of things people listed, 
I would have had a pretty good guess. But when I saw the list and I typed it up, it was poignant, even painful, because the same themes kept coming up over and over and over again. And in fact, a single phrase, not good enough, appeared dozens of times. And there were many variations of that. Not having enough money, not being smart enough, not being able to work fast enough, not being worthy. And then the second very common themes were around rejection, abandonment, and not belonging. So fear of failure, fear that people won't like me for who I am, fear of being alone, fear of being outside a family or a tribe, fear of being found out as a fraud. Perhaps some of you might recognize some of those thought patterns in yourself. Or maybe for some of you, none of these are relevant. So if that's you, you can just settle back and rest until we get to the section on mudita and then you'll really have an opportunity to practice. So I wanted to share just a few examples there. Because what was striking for me was that group were self-selected people who were interested in understanding themselves and who had some dharma practice, who were oriented to wisdom and compassion. And yet even in that group of people, there was that pervasive sense of unworthiness and fear of rejection. And at the same time, pretty much everyone believed that they were the only ones experiencing those conditions. So I share that just to begin to normalize how common this lack mind is. And on retreat, we can see it coming up quite often in relation to the practice meetings with the teachers. In other words, me. And I've often been on the other side of that dynamic, so I know it from being a student too. And then to me it's strange that this, um, the individual practice meetings are almost never talked about in Dharma talks, and yet they're almost designed to bring up lack mind for some people and the consequent suffering if we don't understand how to relate to them skillfully. So one symptom might be before the practice meeting. Sometimes there's a tendency to rehearse a lot. Now it's fine to jot down a few key points of what you want to say, but if hours before the meeting there's ruminating, should I say this, should I say that, will this sound intelligent, will this sound stupid, that might be a little bit of a symptom that lack mind is coming into play. And so to try to meet that with kindness, with compassion, just to know, name or know, okay, rehearsing is like this. It's okay. Anxiety is like this. And just this is powerful practice. And then during the meeting we might notice at times flickerings of desire for approval or fear of rejection or at times a wave of irritation or frustration suddenly feeling like we're four years old. And again, we can normalize this as being just part of 
what we get to see during the retreat and to try not to have it fall into to become a source of shame because shame is such a potent force that gets in the way of clear seeing of insight and we try to meet that with kindness too sometimes we get through the meeting feels fine we think it went well and then something kicks in and we keep going over and over and over what we said whether we should have said it whether the teacher really got it or they're just pretending to understand and so again we can notice this as a kind of mental reflex another symptom of lack mind and see if we can meet that with compassion And then the practice meetings become an opportunity to actually take in the kindness and the compassion that are being offered there. So as we see through lack mind more clearly, it gets easier too to recognize comparing mind. And this pattern has deep roots too. It was seen, recognized all the way back at the time of the Buddha. And the Buddha named it, referred to it as mana. And this Pali term usually is translated as conceit. And it's, as I said, that very common tendency to assess ourselves in relation to other people as being better than, worse than, or the same as. And in the Buddha's understanding, all three of these are seen as equally distorted because they assume a fixed identity or static personality in ourselves and in others. And although mana is usually translated as conceit, in English the word conceit usually is about thinking of ourselves as superior to other people. But in the Buddha's understanding, thinking ourselves inferior to others is equally seen as conceit. So the English word perhaps conceiving is a better translation than conceit because conceiving has that sense of us doing something with our minds, concocting or constructing or conceptualizing that distorted perception of ourselves, of others. And this comparing mind It can operate in relation to other people, but also comparing ourselves to how we were in the past, to what happened in the past, to what we want to happen in the future. And both of those carry the delusion of a fixed identity that continues from past to future. And often when we look more closely, that identity is someone who needs to improve, to get better, to make progress. And we can see it sometimes even just in one sitting where we sit down and we tell ourselves, right, this is the one where I finally get it. The mind is going to settle, deep samadhi is going to develop, the awakening factors are going to come into play, and is it happening yet? Is it happening? How's my tranquility? How's my concentration? Where's that rapture they keep talking about? Right there, comparing mind is at work again, this time in relation to ourselves. Now we want to be clear that there is discernment and discernment is different than judgment. So discernment just recognizes when skillful states are present, when they're absent. 
but judgment is entangled with a fixed sense of me, the one who should be in control, the one who's responsible for micromanaging this whole process. So to free ourselves, to begin to free ourselves from the grip of these two syndromes of lack mind, of comparing mind, we can bring in the wisdom of the three universal characteristics. So impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. Or to use slightly different language, the understanding that everything we experience is impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. So the first one, impermanence, is a powerful ally to help weaken these conditioned formations when we can consciously remind ourselves of the truth of change. So when one of these <coughs> afflictive thought patterns comes up, instead of struggling to avoid it or to get rid of it, one option is just to ride it out, knowing that this too shall pass. This too shall pass. It's impermanent. Because of the truth of change, at some point it will release, almost of its own accord. And this can help us to get out of trying to control the state, because that very struggle sometimes locks it in even more. Often, though, there's a tendency to collapse into the afflictive state, and unconsciously to make it feel more real, more solid, more permanent, by the way we talk about it in our inner dialogue. So I mentioned this briefly earlier on in the retreat when I was talking about the training precept of wise speech or right speech and how we need to notice in our own inner dialogue how are we speaking to ourselves as well as how do we speak to others. And as I was paying more attention to my inner speech, especially when I was in the grip of an afflictive state, I started to recognize how often I was using language that distorted reality and made things more permanent. And there are, these are what psychologists call eternalizing statements. And eternalizing statements are things like, I'm always anxious. I never experience any calm. I'm constantly getting it wrong. So words such as always or never, these are symptoms of absolutist thinking. And absolutist thinking is an unhealthy thinking style that psychologists have linked to anxiety and depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So it's worth paying attention to notice if those words are coming up in the mind. And if you notice them, just to play with changing that inner language to something that's more accurate, more factually true. So rather than saying, I'm always anxious, you might just acknowledge, I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. hearing a crazy driver out there skidding around. 
enjoying themselves. <laughs> so rather than saying, I never experience any calm, you might say, I haven't had a lot of experience of tranquility in my practice yet. Or rather than saying, I never get it right. Instead, I sometimes feel my practice isn't going as well as it could. So do you hear the difference between those sets of statements? Just energetically how one tends to solidify and the other gives just a little more openness. And just that acknowledgement that the difficult thought patterns are not as continuous as we'd like to believe, that can help to release their grip slightly. Now occasionally when I suggest this strategy to people, sometimes they try to convince me that I'm wrong and that their painful patterns have always been there. They're constantly present now and they will be into the future forever and ever. Amen. So sometimes we can use a different tool to challenge this misperception. And that's just to notice the intensity of the state in any given moment on a scale of 0 to 10. So again, staying with anxiety as an example. If 10 was a full-blown panic attack and 0 was complete calm, we can check throughout the day how intense might the anxiety be right now. And as we do that, we start to notice that actually it's fluctuating. And usually there are times when it's much lower than we might have consciously told ourselves. And again, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, we tend not to notice those times when the anxiety is less. So this scale of 0 to 10 can help train us to acknowledge those times when anxiety is reduced, or possibly at times even gone completely. And when we notice that, we can abide in those times, fully letting in how the body and the heart and the mind feel when we're not anxious. And this can help to rewire or reset the nervous system. So noticing impermanence and substantiality change. And then the second characteristic, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, imperfection. It can also be an ally to challenge the afflictive thought patterns. Now dukkha can be a hard one to accept at first because it challenges our individual, our collective, our societal conditioning that drives us to try to make everything better or even perfect. And this drives this drive is to keep trying to change the external circumstances and even the people around us to get them to be exactly the way we want them to be. So there's a deeply unconscious assumption that if I could just do X or Y or Z then everything will be okay. Then I'll be happy. But in spite of all that effort out there, not many of us can say that we've experienced that lasting, stable happiness we keep hoping for. Now, of course, there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But because of the truth of impermanence, conditions are unstable. 
and eventually the happiness fades away. So acknowledging the truth of unsatisfactoriness doesn't mean we just give up completely because, well, it's all dukkha anyway. That would be apathy rather than true acceptance. But what we're doing is learning how to discern what we are able to change and to accept what we can't. And to notice the assumption, the expectation that we should be different, we should be better, other things shouldn't be happening. And we can understand, we can orient instead to the understanding that because we're human beings, we have vulnerable human bodies and hearts and minds. And at times we will be susceptible to greed, to hatred, to delusion. This is normal and natural. As far as I know, there isn't a human being alive who is completely and utterly immune from them. So we want to orient to the understanding of dukkha as an antidote to the tendency of perfectionism. Now, even though we might understand this in theory, I think many of us have the tendency to take our own afflictive mind states very personally, to see them as our own unique shortcoming. So this is where the third characteristic of anatta, the understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process, can be very freeing. We start to recognize that there is not a fixed, solid, permanent self who dwells at the center of the universe, even though it often feels that way. Now again, this is not always so easy to understand intellectually. So for now, I'll just touch into what happens when we don't have this understanding. As a general rule, the more painful the thought patterns, the more deep-rooted they are, the more likely we are to take them personally and to make them me and mine and who I am. And again, our inner language can be very revealing here. And one place we can be on the lookout for is for those inner statements that begin with, I am. And in my own practice, it was quite shocking when I started to recognize how often I was telling myself, I am such and such, I am so and so. And when I really looked at those statements more carefully, most of the time they were not true. Occasionally they were partially true, but they were never the concrete, solid truths that I was trying to convince myself of. So we might tell ourselves things like, well, I'm just an aversive type, or I'm a victim of workplace bullying, or I'm a highly realized meditator. Now, those statements might have some partial truth, but when they're expressed in that very fixed way, they become prisons, and they keep us stuck in relating to the world in just one way. So again, we can play with the language and change it. Instead of saying, I'm an aversive type, we might say, well, under certain conditions, I do have a tendency to experience irritation and frustration. Instead of telling ourselves, I'm a victim of workplace bullying, eventually it might be in a highly toxic work environment, 
I found it hard to stand up for myself. I'm a highly realized meditator. Might become right now in this meditation session, the practice feels to be going well. So again, we're bringing in more nuance, more subtlety, more openness, rather than collapsing our whole identity into that statement. So these are different ways of bringing in the wisdom wing of the practice, using the lenses of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of not-self, to challenge some of those afflictive thought patterns. For all of us, there will be times when these thought patterns get such a grip on us that the mind can't make any headway. And often this is because the heart needs some attention. So at these times we might need to turn to the other wing, the compassion wing, to work very directly with the painful emotions that might be keeping those patterns locked in place. Now I already spoke a bit about compassion itself earlier in the retreat. So just to keep in mind that the compassion wing includes all four of the Brahmaviharas. Tonight I'd like to just touch in to the third of these, which is mudita, or appreciative joy. Because appreciative joy can be a very powerful antidote to the misery and the inadequacy of lack mind and comparing mind. So mudita is the heart's capacity to feel happiness, joy and gladness. And there's an emphasis on the capacity to feel gladness for someone else's happiness. But it also includes flavors of appreciation and gratitude. So it can be a very uplifting and inspiring quality. So one definition of mudita from the English teacher, Dharma teachers, Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs, they define mudita as the love that celebrates. And it's an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. So mudita is the love that celebrates. And traditionally it's a celebration of other people's happiness and good fortune. And although at first this might seem counterintuitive, as we experiment with this practice, as we tune into other people's happiness, we start to discover that it increases our own happiness as well. So some of you know the famous quote from the Tibetan master Shantideva, who says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. And all the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So this capacity to celebrate other people's happiness brings us many benefits. And one is that our sense of separateness and lack diminishes. We can feel more connected to other people, kinder and more generous. And this helps us to understand the truth of interconnectedness and anatta. Because when we stop taking our own problems so personally, and we can tune into other people's happiness, it can act as a powerful catalyst for the awakening factor of rapture or joy. And so it can directly support the development of insight. 
So how do we do mudita as a meditation practice? Traditionally, it's taught similar to metta, where we silently recite phrases for different categories of people. And the phrases are aimed to um, cultivate this state of joy. And just to acknowledge though, that for many people, even the word joy might feel like a stretch, just not part of our emotional repertoire or capacity. And culturally, we all have different conditionings. So, as I sometimes say, for myself, having heritage, having parents from the north of England, I don't think joy was even a word in my vocabulary for like the first 30 plus years of my life. So again, you know, just to acknowledge this is a training. And if the word joy feels like a stretch for you, you can use a different word, maybe gladness or appreciation, lightness. So mudita doesn't have to be a big ecstatic bliss state. And one way we can help to get this quality started is by consciously orienting to aspects of our lives that we can appreciate in a very immediate way. So just to get into the habit as a training to notice any aspects of our experience that register as pleasant. So that's what we were doing the other day in the exploration of feeling tone when I invited you to walk outside together and to name pleasant experiences out loud. So just to ease us into this quality, I thought to take a few moments now and just to reflect in terms of your experience of this retreat. Sometimes I call this crowdsourcing mudita. (laughs) So you might take a moment. Is there anything in your retreat experience so far that you can appreciate, feel a sense of gratitude for? Just a moment to tune into that. Any experience that you appreciate, feel grateful for, take delight in, brings a flicker of joy. Anyone have an example they'd like to share? Just something very small, simple, be fine. The food. The food. (laughs) Food is a source of mudita. Yes, thank you. It's deliciousness. The weather we've had. Not too hot, not too cold, sunny, and now beautiful and moist. The staff, the support of the the servers, the volunteers, their lightness and generosity. The movement, the mindful movement, getting into the body and feeling ease in the body at the back. When the eye alights, there's joy. The grounds, the whole place is just so beautiful, beautiful and enjoyable. Yeah, so visually, wherever the eye alights, you said, or whatever you see, the grounds, the gardens, the flowers. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Yes. Um, the dedication of all of the practitioners. The dedication of all of the practitioners. Yeah, that's inspiring, uplifting. Thank you. Teacher. <laughs> the Buddha, yes. A lot to appreciate there. Yes. 
Well, there's a lineage there, but thank you. So, yeah. The clarity of your teaching. The clarity of my teaching, okay. Thank you. So Paramudita is also receiving, so I'll model that for you. <laughs> now there's a lot here we can celebrate, right? We can feel, you can notice now, how does it feel in the body, the heart, the mind, that sense of uplift. So we can begin our mudita practice by tuning in to that sense of ease, of well-being, of happiness. And then traditionally, we offer that quality of appreciative joy to someone we're close to who's enjoying some good fortune. And then we move to the benefactor, and then a neutral person, and a so-called difficult person, and then finally, all beings. So that's the traditional form of the practice. You may have noticed, and some of you know, there was one category of being that was left out in that traditional <coughs> sequence. Anybody notice? Oneself. Mm. Thank you. So, in the way the practice developed, traditionally we don't include ourselves in mudita practice. And when I was first exploring this, I thought it was strange. Because everywhere else in the Buddha's teachings, we're encouraged to not make any distinction between ourself and others. And so it didn't make sense to me that here in mudita practice, we do it for everyone else, but not ourselves. And so I asked a Pali scholar, well, what does the word mudita mean? And he said that originally it simply meant gladness, and it didn't have any sense of for another and I discovered that the form of mudita practice that I just described came from the Visuddhimagga, which is about a thousand years after the lifetime of the Buddha. And as far as we know, at the time of the Buddha, the way mudita was practiced was more as that form of radiating energy. So abiding, pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with gladness, abundance, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So in that form, the mudita starts in our own hearts and it becomes pervasive. And so in a way, it does include ourselves. And as I was exploring all of this, at about the same time, I found a teaching that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. Some of you are familiar with it. And this man, Mahanama, was a householder who lived, quote, in a household dusty and crowded with children. So he was very much not a monastic. And he went to the Buddha and asked the Buddha to give teachings that were suitable for a householder like him. And the Buddha invited him to contemplate six things every day. And he told Mahanama that if he did this, he would develop... Samadhi, he would develop the kind of rapturous joy that leads to deep concentration and in turn from there to clear seeing to insight. And so the six things that the Buddha advised Mahanama to contemplate were the good qualities of the Buddha, the good qualities of the Dhamma, the good qualities of the Sangha. And then what I found very interesting, to contemplate his own generosity and his own virtues, his own good quality, 
and then lastly the good qualities of the devas or angels. So what interested me in that list was the invitation to recollect one's own generosity and one's own good qualities as often as one remembers throughout the day. And when I first read this, I felt a little horrified, even at the idea of contemplating one's own good qualities. And sometimes when I share it with other students, there's a similar response, almost of fear, because of that deep conditioning around unworthiness. And even for some people, the sense that we deserve to suffer and we shouldn't feel any happiness. And then apart from our own individual conditioning, there's often a lot of cultural conditioning too. So for example, I grew up in England and New Zealand. And in both those countries, there's a lot of social pressure not to blow your own trumpet. And here in Australia, we have the tall poppy syndrome, where anybody who stands out gets cut down to size. And in Japan, apparently, they have a saying, the nail that sticks out gets hammered flat. So it's not surprising that we would have a fear of anything even remotely in the terrain of being seen, and that we might tend to disown our own achievements or our own good qualities, even to ourselves. But as the Buddha pointed out to Mahanama, Openly acknowledging our strengths turns them into a resource, something that helps us to develop confidence on this path. So when I first read that instruction a few years ago, almost because it felt so foreign and unnatural, I decided I would try it as a practice. And before I started it, I thought I'd need to take care that it didn't make me feel superior or inflated But I was surprised to find that actually the opposite was true. That when I felt just this simple connection to my own good qualities, it was much easier to appreciate the good qualities of other people too. I felt more at ease. I felt more of a sense of kinship with others instead of the more usual comparing mind. And the more that I really looked at these good qualities and contemplated them, I realized that they didn't actually belong to me at all. They were conditions instilled in me from my parents or my teachers, my friends, from the Buddha's teachings, from my meditation practice, from society around me. They were conditioned phenomena just like everything else, arising due to causes and conditions. So I couldn't really think of them as mine. And I noticed that just as the Buddha described, I felt more at ease and happier and clearer when I was aware of my strengths as well as my weaknesses. That's not to deny that there are other things as well, but again, opening to the whole spectrum, the fuller picture of who I am, rather than fixating on the lack, the inadequacy. So coming back to where I started, this connecting to my inner resources helped to develop more compassion, more emotional resilience that comes from strengthening our capacity to experience joy. 
And that resilience makes us more available to be with suffering too. So we can open more to the full spectrum of being human. And we can learn to abide in the balance of the fourth Brahma-Vahara equanimity, which is also the last of the factors of awakening, the heart and mind that is completely at ease and at rest, and which eventually culminates in the deepest possible peace of Nirvana. So freeing ourselves from these afflictive states, opening ourselves to mudita, brings us closer along this path to peace. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.